It has been two years, three months, and five days since I last treated a patient. Last episode covered a crucial aspect that is required to be a good provider. Today I'm going to talk about how to be a good patient. This statement has a really common response. The exact sentence may be different, but the undertone is this. It's not my job to be a good patient, it's your job to help me. I understand the sentiment. After all, in the United States, patients are paying a health insurance premium, or sometimes even cash, for a service. Why would the patient need to jump through the many hoops I'm about to lay out? It's a fair question, but the summary answer is simple. If you aren't a good patient, your care will significantly decrease. First things first, I'm not going to go into detail on something I've already said many times in previous episodes. You need to participate in your home program to get good outcomes. The end. No more discussion on that topic. I would like to think that I've said it enough by now that this is well understood. Everything else going forward today is the rest of what it is to be a good patient. First, you must be on time to your appointments. When I say on time, I actually mean whatever you were told on the phone or in the email from the clinic. Your calendar appointment time might be 9 a.m., but you may have been told that you need to be at the clinic 15 minutes early to fill out paperwork. This language choice is very specific. The seemingly obvious solution to patients who don't show up 15 minutes early would be to tell the patient that their appointment is at 845. What actually ends up happening in reality is that some people fill out the paperwork that they were sent or downloaded from the website ahead of time. If I were to say that the appointment is at 845 and that person came in with the paperwork filled out expecting to be seen at 845 but didn't get seen until 9 a.m. because that's the actual appointment time, well, you'd be understandably annoyed. The problem is that people are told your appointment is at 9 a.m. with the provider, but you need to come 15 minutes early for paperwork. In the moment, people generally understand that they need to be early. Most people will proceed to put 9 a.m. in their calendar, because that's the actual appointment time, and then they think they'll show up early like they were told. I'm being generous when I say that 25% of the time this happens. A response to this issue will often come up. My doctor is always late. I don't show up on time because I just end up having to wait for an hour anyway. I'm not a physician, and our billing structures are very different. That difference is what makes the time on the clock extremely important to me, but less so for a physician. I'll explain that more in a second. There's usually a follow-up statement I'm hit with at this point. But Adam, sometimes you're late for my appointments too. You are correct. And unless you're the very first appointment in my day, and there was bad traffic that I should have left my house earlier to accommodate for, my lateness to your appointment time is actually entirely out of my control for all other scenarios. Now, let's return to the billing structure difference. Buckle up. You're in for some riveting content here. Worry not, though. The first half of this topic should bore you to tears, but I'm going to get you re-engaged later by infuriating you. <coughs> Physician billing is predominantly done by procedure, whereas physical therapy is billed by time. A segment of 15 minutes is considered one unit, so if I do some kind of manual therapy on you for 15 minutes, I can bill one unit of manual therapy code to your insurance provider. Insurance providers will not reimburse for more than four units per patient per day, so the most amount of time I can see you and still get reimbursed is one hour. Rarely is something that we do in the clinic exactly 15 minutes. So we have what's called the eight-minute rule. For something to count as a unit of billable time, it must take at least eight minutes, but last no more than 22 minutes. 
the math people out there will notice that those two numbers are just 7 minutes on either side of 15. If I do 23 minutes of something, I can build two units. Technically speaking, if you were to work all of this out, this means that I can see you for 53 minutes and still bill four units, or one hour. Alternatively, we can get started up to seven minutes late, and I can still bill four units. Hey, asshole, you're screwing me out of seven minutes of therapy. I understand your anger. However, in my day, if I'm not doing any kind of billable service to a patient, I'm not generating income for the clinic, or myself if I own my own business. That means that a PT schedule will be back-to-back -back patients with zero seconds in between for the entire workday minus a lunch break. That seven, seven minutes of wiggle room each hour is important. That's not my problem, Adam. I want the full 60 minutes. I continue to understand your anger. However, the patient I worked with right before you had both a foot problem and a shoulder problem. This person needed manual therapy on her bare foot, and I also had to dig into her armpit. Oh, and she also thinks it's a good idea to do a heavy-duty work, heavy workout without showering right before our appointment. By the way, what I just said is a real person. Another way to be a good patient is to not come sweaty and gross like she always did. Anyway, after I'm done seeing that patient, would you like me to wash my hands before I see you? That's also not my problem. It's hers. Take it out of her time. Touché. Hey, remember that time you asked me a really important and complicated question with only two minutes left in our appointment that took me 15 minutes to answer? I lost a unit of billable time. How about when you showed up 10 minutes late because of traffic the other day? I lost a unit of billable time. Oh, and then there's that initial evaluation when you didn't show up 15 minutes early for paperwork, costing me a unit of billable time and making me have to do an hour's worth of work to evaluate you in 45 minutes. This is where the seven minutes of wiggle room comes into play. I could also plead for a sense of humanity and say things like, sometimes I just need to go to the bathroom, and of course wash my hands, between patients. I've just learned that pleading to humanity rarely works on most people. In fact, some of you might even be saying to yourself, your billable time isn't my problem, it's the business's problem. To those people, I still have a retort. While you are 100% correct that the billing structure of physical therapy is not your direct problem, it is very much indirectly your problem. Let me explain. The U.S. national average for reimbursement for a physical therapist is about $125 per hour. Many hear that and think, whoa, I wish I could make that much. I'm with you. I wish I could make that much too. That $125 an hour is what we get reimbursed. But then there's business expenses. Support staff generate no income but still need a paycheck. Office supplies need to be consistently be resupplied. You know those free exercise bands that we give you that you don't own? We have to buy those too. There's a fair chance you're also coming to a building of some sort. It has rent. If I'm coming to you, I have gas and wear and tear on my car. That $125 quickly becomes a low $40 per hour. Adam, that's still a lot of money. Yes, it is. But it's predicated on having a 100% full schedule. Most PT clinics will strive for 85% productivity due to patients who don't show up or cancel an appointment too late to be filled again. So if I were to take a real number, like $42 per hour, shout out to those of you who recognize the Hitchhiker's Guide reference, then multiply that by 85% capacity, I'm now down to an effective hourly rate of $35.70.
This is a number that also suggests that 85% product, productivity is the norm. It is not the norm. It is the target. Once again, Adam, that's still a lot of money. All right, then let's add to that that I came out of school with $152,000 of student loan debt and a fixed rate of 6.75% interest on a 30-year repayment plan. I'll save you the trouble of doing math, but that means that my student loan debt is nearly half of my salary for 30 years. Wow, Adam, that sounds like a rough situation, but I'm still having a hard time understanding why your finances are my problem. <clears throat> they are your problem if you'd like me to stay in business. And before you'd say that you'd just go somewhere else if my business closed down, well, that person has the exact same problem. I'm recording this in late 2022. Anyone who has tried to find an appointment with a PT during COVID or even still recently after that point, you may have noticed that it's extremely hard to find one available. We plain and simply cannot afford to be PTs. And you can be damn sure the job stress doesn't make it worth it to be one. Be on time. There's another indirect reason that you need to be on time. You don't get to see the PT very many times for a condition. Actually, Adam, I can see my PT a lot. I'm one of those lucky people who gets 45 visits per year. No, you don't. Those of you who have not yet been hit by the very rude awakening of third-party authorization, let me explain to you why you don't actually have 45 visits per year. Or 30, if that's what your insurance plan says. Or 25. Or 12. Your plan doesn't matter. You are paying a monthly premium to your insurance provider who says you get up to 45 visits per year. However, they are taking your premium dollars and hiring a third-party company to review your case to determine medical necessity. The standard is to receive six approved visits at the start of an episode of care. Then, your case needs to be assessed by the authorizer. At the sixth visit, you need to fill out paperwork that you already filled out before the first visit, call back to the importance of showing up early when you're told you have paperwork, and then compare the beginning to now. I also have to re-examine you to compare objective measures of the first visit to those of the sixth visit. Mind you, you're not actually getting beneficial rehab work done during this re-examination. I take a lot of measures each session to measure progress. However, all of the measures the third party cares about are measures that have little to no impact on your functional progress. Those take me time to measure, but don't really do anything beneficial for you. So, you're going to come in early to do your redundant paperwork. I'm taking the first half of the session to take valueless measurements, and then we're submitting that information to the third-party authorizer to review. If you've made too little progress, you'll be denied further visits for lack of progress. If you've made too much progress, you'll be denied further visits because you no longer fit the category of medical necessity. Let me explain what is meant by medical necessity. Return to exercise is not considered medically necessary because, after all, you don't have to exercise. But Adam, my doctor told me I need to exercise for my health. You're correct, good patient, but you don't have to exercise. You're just more likely to have more diseases and disabilities later in life if you don't. It's not medically necessary to exercise, it's medically recommended. If this hasn't angered you enough, let me tell a story about a patient. This person was an emergency room physician. One of the things he had to do on a relatively frequent basis was relocate dislocated shoulders. The things you've probably seen on TV or movies where a shoulder is slammed back into place is not done anymore. 
That just often ends up causing torn labrums, fractures, torn rotator cuff muscles, etc. Now, the more appropriate action is to put a very slight pull on the arm, sustained for many minutes, think in the range of like 20 to 30 minutes, while the physician gently massages the muscles of the shoulder to get them to relax. When enough muscle relaxation occurs, the shoulder just kind of slides back into place. It's much more gentle and causes a lot less secondary injury. It just requires a lot of manual work for the physician. I think all physicians would say that it's worth it given the result. Anyway, this physician has his own shoulder injury, and his pain was essentially limiting from him being able to do his workplace duties. When he was denied further physical therapy, I was ready to go with this as my ace in the hole. As I talked to the case reviewer, I explained his functional limitations, range limitations, and pain. She told me that based on these measurements, he meets criteria for functional and therefore didn't need further therapy. This was complete bullshit, by the way. The mechanical definition of functional movement is not the one the third-party authorizers use. They have their own internal measurement scale that is the bare minimum objective measures that have a low likelihood of needing surgery later. Let me say that again. You will be denied care even though you hurt and aren't back to your normal life because you are a low-risk candidate for surgery. Feel free to get more angry about that as I continue the story. I was prepared for her to deny him more visits based on what I told her so far. I'm sorry, Adam. He does not meet the criteria of medical necessity. His shoulder range of motion is within functional limits, and he has good strength. Okay, but he's unable to do his job because of his shoulder pain. I go on to explain what I explained to you already, smiling as I did it, because I knew that not being able to return to work would meet criteria for medical necessity, and we'd get more visits approved. We will not be able to approve more visits. Return to work is not considered medically necessary. What? Then what the fuck is? Sir, you don't need to yell at me. I'm sorry. I know you didn't make this rule, but seriously, I need to know what is considered medically necessary if working isn't. The patient needs to be able to sleep, move through their house, bathe themselves, and eat. So what you're telling me is that the only, only the most basic activities of daily living exclusively performed inside the house are what is considered medically necessary? That is correct. I'm not going to continue with that story because it still leaves me seething in rage four years after it happened. All I'll finish with is that I only got to see him eight times, and I would put him in the ballpark of about 60% progress towards getting back to his normal life. This story is to represent that you get far fewer visits than you think you do. We have to make the absolute most of the ones we get. Don't be late. The last thing I want to bring up is communication with your PT. You need to tell them everything you can about your medical history. While I understand that people often like to, to keep privacy withholding medical information from medical providers is an extremely effective way to get worse outcomes. Even when something seems irrelevant to what you're in the clinic for, you must remember the expression that I've used many times now. You don't know what you don't know. It is my job as a medical provider to determine what information in a medical history is relevant and what isn't. The more you withhold from me, the less variables I have to work with to determine an accurate diagnosis and a plan of care. I'm going to give two examples of how important giving a medical provider all the information is. The first was a woman who had moderately limited amount of motion <clears throat> in her right shoulder and had started to develop pain. 
I suspected the pain was the result of compensatory movements she had when she had to do things that were overhead. As I always said in initial evaluations, please tell me any medications you're taking for anything, any medical conditions you have or have had, and any surgeries you've had in the past. Asking for this much information might sound prying, but I couldn't possibly care less about any of it on a social or personal level. Medications have side effects. Medical conditions can have mental and physical components I need to be aware of so I don't prescribe the wrong thing for you. Surgeries have very widespread biomechanical effects. Her response to me was, nothing, I'm pretty healthy. I often want to ask some kind of follow-up question that effectively means, are you sure? The problem is that I can't ask that. It goes back to PT being a customer service job first. It's a risky question to ask because it can easily piss off the patient by insulting their intelligence or being nosy. A few weeks in, we were showing no progress at all. This happened to be the summertime, and the clinic I was in didn't have air conditioning. She came in one day with small shorts and a short tank top, knowing that we'd be doing exercises, and it was a really hot day. At one point in the session, she was lying on her back. Her phone rang, and she said, Sorry, I need to check if this is my babysitter. She reached to the floor with her left arm, and from being on her back, I put a stretch on her right side. The tank top was short enough that I could see the skin on her lower right abdomen, and it didn't move quite right. The skin pulled together a little bit, kind of like a pucker. Patient's name here. Quick question. Have you had any abdominal surgeries? Oh, yeah. I had to have a C-section when my son was born. Sorry I didn't mention that earlier. I didn't think it was relevant. I'll spare the remaining story, but I sent her to a scar tissue specialist physician who uses techniques to break up scar tissue restrictions. With only a couple of visits seeing him, she had fully regained her right shoulder motion and was pain-free. I didn't even have to see her again when he was done. What was perceived to be irrelevant was actually the problem. One more story. I saw a young woman who had some nonspecific low back pain. As always, I asked my questions about history and the evaluation, and she also said no medications, conditions, or surgeries. Let me tell you, her case was super frustrating for us both. We worked together for almost eight weeks, and we simply couldn't make changes. We couldn't even make it worse. It's not that we were trying to make it worse. It's just unusual that there's no functional fluctuation at all in the mechanical pain. Two providers out there, don't worry. Lack of change in a non-mechanical pain way. I know what you're thinking. I ruled that out too. Back to patients, I'm being intentionally vague here. It has to do with our diagnostic funnels on mysterious cases. Not something for you to be concerned about. One visit, she said to me, Hey, I'm really sorry. I have to leave early today. I have to go see my doctor to get a refill prescription for my birth control. You're on birth control? I ask. How long have you been taking it? Is it new? You did mention that you weren't on medications in the initial evaluation. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been on it for a couple of years now. It's just part of my daily routine so much that I totally forgot that I was on it when you asked. I said to her, This might sound a little crazy, but I read an article recently that sometimes birth control pills can be linked to low back pain. You might want to bring that up to your doctor today. She did. And in fact, her doctor had read the same article. She ended up changing the birth control the patient was on to a new one, and within a couple of weeks, the back pain had started to dissipate. These two stories are to demonstrate that, one, it's really easy to forget things, and that's okay. I had a very minor surgery that had no functional impact on me that I forget to mention to my medical providers all the time. 
It's just try to do your best to remember where you can. And then two, while I understand the desire to protect your privacy and how things can seem completely unlinked, it would surprise you how often things are actually linked. Just to point, drive that point home, the top of your neck has direct responses to and from your ankles. Tell your provider everything. What you don't say just might be the thing that breaks the case wide open before the third-party authorizer denies you further care and leaves you disabled in your home. Signing off for today, never settle for mediocre, but be careful how hard you burn striving for greatness. Sometimes that cost is more than your mind can afford.